Parents, educators, and activists have all raised concerns about the impact of COVID on the educational experience of students. For high school students, these issues are amplified as they consider graduation and what may come after. The impact of COVID on high school grades is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Harrison Schramm. Schramm is the Principal Research Scientist at Group W, President-Elect at the Analytics Society of Informs. Prior to joining Informs, he was a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and has been a leader in the operations research community for the past decade. Before that, he had a successful career in the U.S. Navy, where he served as a helicopter pilot, military assistant professor at the Naval Postgraduate School, and as a lead operation research analyst at the Pentagon. His research interests are at the intersection of data, mathematical models, and policy. Schramm is also a co-author of an article in Significance magazine detailing how COVID protocols have affected grades in one California high school. Harrison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And as as the child of of a Navy man, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. By, by the way, um, I am too. And by the <laughs> way, I am too. Well, so this is in the Navy, yeah, in, in World War II, yeah. Given your background and your research background, I'm wondering if you can talk us through how you became interested in this in this particular issue of grades during COVID. So it it. it started because it was a question that just seemed like it was begging to be answered, Uh, both locally and nationally, uh, seeing a lot of conversation about how this is impacting the education of kids. Uh, You know, um, we can, while I'm not, I think the jury's still out on what the, whether this was worse or better, it is certainly different uh, by any objective uh, measure. So it just sort of became this question of, gosh, you know, I'm a statistician. I ought to get some data and I ought to put some data behind this. And so that's kind of how it got started. So just a, I, I'm going to do what my journalist colleagues love, and that is we're, we're going to get you not to bury the lead. So we're going to, so, you know, even though there's part of me that would love to, t- to ask you questions about, like, how did you study it? What data did you collect? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm lear- I've learned to not do that. I'm going to ask, what was the most surprising thing that you learned from this, this investigation? So, so the most surprising thing that I learned is how cooperative uh, the school district was, because uh, you know when you know, and and I'm sure you've had this experience as a statistician. You want to study something, but it's not something that you have access to, so you have to go sort of around hat in hand, and you have to ask for data. And usually, when you ask for data, you ask for everything. And uh, I told my two colleagues, one of whom is a teacher at the Pacific Grove High School, and the other one is my daughter. I said, oh, I have very low confidence that they're going to say yes to this. And uh, I pitched the question. We had one informal meeting where I assured them that I would be responsible with the data. And I assured them that I would let them have first a peek at what the findings were. And they, much to my surprise, came back and said yes. So getting started, being able to do this in the first place was really the, uh, the most surprising thing. In, your, in the limited study that you did, did you expect to see grades improve? I wasn't sure. So so there were three epochs, if you will. There's three regimes, if you look in the paper. There's 
everything that's normal. And that was uh, before COVID began, um, approximately a little over a year ago. Hard to believe that. Then um, the school district, uh, when COVID hit, it was during the middle of second semester of academic year 20. And so they had a policy that was called hold harmless. And under the hold harmless policy, your grades could go up, but they could not go down. And because it's statisticians listening to this, there's sort of an optional stopping mechanism at work under the hood here. So it did not surprise me that grades went up during hold harmless. Um, what did surprise me is that there was a lift of about two tenths of a grade point um, during the pure distance learning. Uh, that we've been seeing for the first semester of this year. That's that's the data that we had available. Although there was, wasn't consistent across all of the subjects. Um, no, but there was a lift in all the subjects. I mean, qualitatively, all of the subjects had a big lift during Hold Harmless. And comparing the uh, first semester 2021 against the historical, they all showed some small lift, which, which we thought was noteworthy and interesting. I actually was... I'm, I'm interested to hear what it was like for you to work with your daughter on this. But and I sort of raise this point because I have a high school senior um, who is graduating. And I told her, I'm like, we're going to interview a, a researcher who did research on grades during COVID. And she's like, yeah, COVID really helped my grades, made them higher. And she like, they did a hold harmless here too. And then she said, like, she's also in a lots of music classes because she's a musician. So she's like, that also probably helped. But her grades during the distance learning were also higher. And she said, I was able to use my notes a lot for a lot of things, which I wondered if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you sort of found that bubbled up as to sort of what people were saying might have been helping sort of keep the grades higher. So it was our, it was our, um, our, uh, our opinion, actually our finding that the lift came from the bottom. And, And what I mean by that is that kids who were doing well didn't do better, but there were fewer D's and F's assigned. Uh, by the way, there is a tremendous gender difference um, in the assignment of D's and F's. And I, it was known to the educators, and uh, I hadn't really realized it until I saw it so starkly on the page. But freshmen and sophomore boys get a lot of F's um, compared to the young women that they're in school with. But the lift came from the bottom, and I think that that is because teachers in this regime are much more hesitant to fail a kid because because COVID is hard. I mean, um, and, you know, not to get too much off track, but just getting up and getting through our days during this has been hard. So I think there was a lot of forgiveness given. Hey, I'd like to follow up on the daughter question, too. So when my daughter was 16, she and I wrote an article together for Television Quarterly on our shared interest in uh, Harry Potter and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So... I wanted to know what your daughter's role was in this. And I know she's interested in data. Oh, yeah. So so what was interesting working with my daughter, so first of all, to, to do the piece responsibly, we needed to have the voice of a student. And because of COVID restrictions and also just, it, it turns out the obvious choice of someone to work with was my daughter. And uh, it was interesting. I think it was interesting for her because she got to see how people who are doing this work actually do it, which is not how it's taught, right? Mm -hmm. She got to see me fumble and write code that didn't work and then go back and try again and do things that work. So she got to learn that it's a journey of discovery. You know, it's not that we're all brilliant and sit under the tree and an apple hits us on the head and we know there's gravity. Uh, There's a lot of fumbling and false starts. So she got to learn that. 
What I thought was particularly refreshing is uh, my daughter doesn't have a college education, obviously. She hasn't been through the journal process or the review process. So she wrote with a voice that was more honest and fresher than sort of the stylized um, the stylized musings that academics can be prone to. So you, you, you hinted at some of the things you saw that, that she contributed. What did you learn from both from the teacher as well as from the students input into this project? Isaac was wonderful to work with. I first met him several years ago at a technology uh, council discussion for the local high school. And then he sort of had the same question that I did. And some of the things we talked about is that, and this is in the article, the movement has moved away from assessments like tests and more towards the sort of uh, smash, smash mouth football, if you'll forgive the analogy, of just the grind of getting the work done. And that is happening simultaneously with California looking unfavorably upon standardized testing for college admissions. So I am concerned as a professional that we are moving towards more towards the ability to crank through and do, do your work and get it done well and on time as opposed to what I will call brilliance. Now, let's be clear, brilliance without, brilliance without work is just undeveloped talent, and that's not useful. But there is a place for brilliance. It's what American ingenuity runs on. Um, so I think that one of the things we'll be thinking about a decade from now is did we change towards favoring um, grinding it out over flashes of brilliance, and what are the long-range consequences for um, the United States. So, would, would would you talk a little bit about the data that you that you that you analyzed for this? Because you you know the number like observations, the years of data. You talked about these three epochs of data that you encountered. You know, kind of the pre, the hold harmless, and then the post virtual world, and then just a little bit about some of the variables that you had access to. I mean, you talked about some of the comparisons of of grades that were received and distribution shifting, but can you tell us a little bit more just about kind of what data did you get and what did it look like? So we were very careful when we originally went into this um, about professional ethics. And uh, I am very sensitive because of other areas of my practice. I, I'm very sensitive to personally identifiable information. Yeah. So uh, so we got a bag of grades. And, and by what I mean by a bag of grades is if, if a student was taking six uh, courses during a semester, then they were represented by six lines of data. And those lines were not joined. So I didn't have any sort of identifier, um, either their actual student identifier or a scrambled identifier. I simply didn't have that. And I explained to the school that I didn't want that because even if the, even if the identifier was scrambled, it wouldn't be that hard to reverse engineer and figure out who some of the outlier kids were. And I just didn't want to do that. So, so that was the level of the information we had. We had the, the grade, uh, age, and gender and the grade received. And so out of all of that, uh, we focused on, uh, on the four core areas that we talked about in the paper, which were um, English, science, math, and social studies history, partially because those were the most, those were the things that the parents were the most interested in, and also uh, they were the bins that were the easiest. It was our sense, although we did not test the hypothesis, but it's our sense that kids do pretty well in electives, 
during high school and that they probably would do still be doing pretty well during COVID as well. Just as a, a quick follow-up, in, in some of the, the analyses you did, you looked at like the percentage that got certain age categories, but you also looked at the average grades in the classes. And one, one sort of complimentary question I was curious about is, did you see less variation in the scores as well as shifts in the means? Yeah, well, since, since they got the lift from the bottom, that did tend to tighten up the variance. Yeah. Um, it, it, tend to, it tended to squish it together. Yeah, I mean, you got a ceiling, so you know you're going to get hit hit that. Too. Yeah, yeah, I'm it's just, on a fixed. It's it's not it's on an open fixed. interval. Yeah, yeah. So I was just curious if that's, it, it you know, and if if some you know, I was wondering it could have I could have imagined that there there could even be some some kids that that don't that don't do well in this new environment that maybe you end up with some bimodality if there was any sort of changes and shifts of the shape of these distributions as well. Yeah, what we really are interested in doing as follow-on work would be um, if we had the if we had the identifiers and we had the appropriate compute environment. What I would like to do is start and look backwards at the characteristics of the students, and then look forwards at their performance, uh. and then see if I could find what markers would be useful to identify students who might need more attention. It is my sense that the kids who got failing grades are highly correlated. Um, it's it's not very common that somebody has straight A's and then an F in one in math just because they didn't get it. Um, but if we had the level of data that was appropriate for that, um, that would be something that would be very useful to do, I think. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Harrison Schramm of Informs about the impact of COVID on grades. Harrison, you said you were going to take this back to the school district once you were done with this. Did Were they surprised by any of the findings of this work? Um, no, we, we presented it. Uh, we actually presented it at the school board meeting. And to be honest, um, having you know worked in policy in, in Washington, D.C., and having spent a lot of time at the Pentagon, local school board's a tough audience. Um, it's a very tough audience. However, um, this was more or less a good news story. And, you know, I don't, I'm being very qualitative here, but a lift of two-tenths of a grade point is, is not a particularly good or bad news story. If, if it was an entire letter grade lift, then that would be concerning. Um, if it was much of a much of a decline that would be concerning particularly uh, for the seniors who are in the midst of their college application and college acceptance process mm-hmm. so overall i think it's a good news story you mentioned uh, a qualitative piece of this and uh, your your significance piece reminded me of a number of anecdotal articles i've read from journalists interviewing kids that liked doing school from home on a computer because they felt bullied at school, they felt made fun of, they were smart kids, and they felt sort of free. And it would be interesting in a study like this to sort of combine, I think, uh, interviews with different kids at some point and their experience with this. I I just found that really interesting to see uh, kids that felt freed up from not having the social pressure. So anecdotally, that is very true. Um, you know, as far as we we intentionally did not go down the survey methods hole for this uh, first effort because I just wanted to stick to the hard data uh, in in something like this. Uh, you know, with with when applying a survey, and by the way, I am not a survey specialist, but 
in something like this that touches on public policy, the people that you get the best responses for are the people at the tails of the distribution, and kind of the median doesn't really care that much. So we intentionally stayed away from that. I would just, if you could bear with me for one more minute, the kids who are math inclined and might feel bullied in school, you know, you might get called four-letter words like nerd and geek. And I've got news for you. That's going to continue for the rest of your life. But when you grow up, you're going to get called four-letter words like boss and paid. So, uh, so there is hope. It does get better. <laughs> You raised this issue of accessibility when you were talking about what Nora brought to the writing of of this piece. And I wonder if you could talk about, because it is a very, I mean, Significance publishes accessible pieces, and I, but I wonder if you could talk about why, why having an accessible voice is important for you. Well, well it's really important. Um, you know, one of the soapboxes that I've been on uh, in Informs and, and in my practice at Group W is that the there is this temptation for people in analysis to want to do the work and finish the work and write the report and then hand the work over to someone else to be the champion of it, the, the voice that, that carries it forward, um, both in organizations implementing change and also um, in the popular discussion read media. And when, when that happens, when we abdicate our, um, our voice, then we lose control. And uh, I've had one instance, which I'm not going to go through here, but I've had one instance where I did that and I abdicated my voice and I was horrified by uh, what um, eventually happened to the work that I had done. So I am increasingly of the opinion that in order for us to be truly impactful as professionals in this age that we live in, that we have to be willing to carry the water ourselves. Um, if we rely on others to do it, we're not going to like. We're not going to like where that takes us. Speak a little bit to the role of of journalism in this, because a lot of times for scientists to get their work out there to the public, they're going to have to do it through media. They're going to have to do it through journalism, through programs like ours. I mean, we're very much interested in the whole accessibility of data and science. I think that's why John and I got into this, and Rosemary was joined us uh, eventually. Um, she wasn't kicking and screaming either. She, it was willing. She was. <laughs> that, that's right. So, what's your experience uh, with having journalists actually translate your? Because that's what journalists do. They have to take science and they have to tell a story about it. And what's your experience with that? Um, I, I have some. I have some experience with it. You know, um, and and knowing that you're a journalist, um, journalists are motivated by making an impact, but the sort of impact that a journalist wants to make is not necessarily the sort of impact that a professional statistician wants to make. No one wants to read an article where you say, you know, I studied something that's important to you and I found out everything's just fine. That's not provocative and it's not attention grabbing. So I try very intentionally to, uh, in my own mind, set a potentiometer of how provocative I want to be. And that has to be backed up by the data. It has to be it has to be fact based. But it's difficult. It's the age that we're in. Um, you can find somebody who would be willing to do something to support just about any point of view you wanted to support. And if us in sort of the main sequence of the statistical practice don't chime in, then we're abdicating that voice to others. So this this leads to a very natural question for me, which is: What kind of press coverage did your did your reporting to the school board get? 
Did it make it into the local papers? Did you get any kind of uh, interest? No, no. But uh, school board meetings, um, school board meetings is, is as close to a town hall as as we have in the Internet age. I mean, um, I don't it. I don't. It didn't make any local press, but what would the point be? Because everybody that was interested saw it firsthand. I, you know, I, I could have seen a press release coming out of this, just talking about. I mean, things like you talked about, sort of the the uh, the DF rates. I mean, I thought that was a pretty interesting story that came out of this. And also, you know, your comment about Lyft uh, associated with not just the idea of the the hold harmless component, but actually the Lyft that occurred across. Uh, you know, even when you went to distance learning, and the fact that it was the lowest in math. I was, uh, you know, I was looking at this and I was thinking, you know, if, if I was trying to figure out why was it ordered in the way that science was the highest and then social studies and English were similar and then math was the lowest of, of this. Do you have any kind of thoughts about why that, you know, hypotheses or conjectures about that pattern? I don't. And Isaac Rubin's a math teacher, so I gave him a lot of grief about this <laughs> when we when we got the results. Um, but but there's there's a number of things going on here. Right. And, and one of the things I was careful to point out to the school board when we were talking is that I'm measuring what with this data. I'm not yeah. measuring why. Like and there's a lot going on behind the why. And we won't know for a decade pedagogically which, which teachers were effective and, and which ones were not. I certainly, as a mature professional, have a very different opinion on which of my high school teachers were important and impactful to me than I did when I was 18. So, and then I also have to point out, this is one small school in one small town. My sense is that if you were to repeat this in other parts of uh, the United States, you might get radically different, um, radically different um, answers. For example, there's two laptops per person in my home, and not everybody has that. And so kids in areas where the technology isn't as accessible where the parents aren't um, able to give as much, uh, let's call it, loving encouragement to get in sci- to get assignments uh, finished on time, uh, you might see a very different result. I expect I expect the result we had here to be highly localized. Yeah. You you stole my question there, Harrison. I was going to ask you about the generalizability, but you know, but since you did that, you answered it before I asked. I get to, I get an extra question, Rosemary. I was curious about the the issue about what would be next. I mean, I. Yeah, you know, the the thing that came to mind when you were just answering that was the idea of there are certainly other predictors that would be important here beyond what you'd looked at. There's this issue, like you mentioned, about the generalizability and seeing if it would apply in other circumstances and other districts. So what would be the next study you'd like to conduct in this in this area? Well, so I, I think it would be very interesting to see uh, to see what the results were uh, from different school districts in, in different parts of California or even the country. And, you know, we have to be very careful about our terms here. Seeing a point two lift, I'm not sure. I don't know what success is, right? I don't know that, that this was successful. I just know that it was a measure. And uh, again, with California not smiling on standardized tests, um, these grade point averages are going to be the be the determinant for kids uh, in the college application process. So, you know, we're, we're talking about people's futures in their lives and the workforce that's going to support all of us when we're retired. So, so this is a really important issue. I'd like to do that. Um, I'd also like to take a look at record level data where I did have the records and was able to correlate because I think it would be... So, so 
A statistician is never going to know the kids as well as the teacher does. That's just never going to happen. So the best thing that we can do, uh, particularly if we were going to predict which kids to look at um, or which kids to pay attention to in the unfortunately likely event that we may have to go into quarantine again in the next several years, I, I would be horrified if we created a machine that told the, the teachers which kids they should be paying more attention to. But if we created a, a machine that told the teachers, hey, in addition to your own judgment, you know, please look in on this kid and this kid. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So as algorithm to um, support a teacher's judgment is probably the best use of this. No, no, you didn't. That's that, that's interesting. I, I can tell you I've done some analysis of, of data from my department. And, uh, you know, we've seen that if, if students that, that don't do well, that, that get, you know, a, a DF or W in an intro stat class, a large fraction of them get a DF or W in other classes they're taking in the same term. It's 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 a it's a signal of something broader than just struggling in a single course that's often being manifest. I also like the point that you made in the article that under the student perspective, the the removal of test taking anxiety in a classroom, uh, an emphasis on other kinds of like note taking and just discussion and participation. I, I thought that was powerful uh, in that in that part of the article. Well, well, that was my daughter's contribution, and That's and I'm I at thought. cross purposes there because uh, test anxiety is real for kids, and I think it's worse for kids now than when I was growing up. Yes. Having said that, the world is performance based. I uh, I mean, you're talking to somebody who used to fly helicopters off ships. So, <laughs> uh, so my perspective is the world is performance based. Uh, we don't always like that, but it is. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Harrison, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you, John. Thank yeah. you, Richard. Thanks, Harrison. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.